West Side Story, the 1957 <laughs> musical, is having a moment, as they say. It has been remounted on Broadway in a, I guess you would say, controversial production by the Belgian director Ivo van Hove. I hope I said that right. Mm-hmm. And coming later this year, at the end of 2020, is going to be a new film version adapted by Co- Tony Kushner and directed by um, uh, a young upstart named Steven Spielberg. <laughs> And um, it's uh, and our old friend Daniel Pollock Pelsner has once again written an article in a national publication, the Atlantic Magazine, that dissects both the musical and the production on Broadway right now. And what I loved about the article is that it didn't just criticize the original musical for maybe being dated and problematic in its racial depictions. But you sort of celebrate the original production for what it actually is in a way that I don't think I've ever seen expressed before. And so I'm so grateful that you want to talk with me about it with a live microphone going. (laughs) Thanks, Austin. I thought this was going to be Daniel Ruins Everything Part (laughs) 2. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 710, West Side Story. Remember live theater? Remember when the big story back in late February of 2020 was the controversial Evo Van Hove production of West Side Story? In the words of John Adams from my favorite musical, 1776, does anybody care? I sure hope so, because this week I'm going to share with you a conversation I had back on March 3rd, 2020, with Daniel Pollock Pelsner, a professor of Shakespeare, English, and Gender Studies at Linfield College in Oregon, and a contributing writer to the New York Times and Atlantic Magazine. In 2019, Daniel talked with us on the podcast about his New York Times article that talked about the racist origins of several tropes in Mary Poppins. This time, Daniel talks about the article he wrote for the Atlantic Magazine entitled, Why West Side Story abandoned its queer narrative. It's a wonderful bit of analysis, and I was thrilled he agreed to come on and talk about not only the, I was going to say current, Evo Van Hove production, but it's not current anymore. It's closed, and I don't know whether it'll ever reopen. But Daniel also talked to us about the origins of the creation of West Side Story itself. I'm glad that you felt what I was trying to do, which was to really appreciate what artists in a a time of very difficult constraint were able to accomplish and what it could mean to honor their legacy when the work that they created has been hurtful for a lot of people. Well, yeah, and and let's talk about, I think most people know West Side Story, at least. It's, you know, it's about street gangs in New York City written in the mid to late 50s. Um, by uh, uh, Arthur Lawrence, uh, Stephen Sondheim, a very young Stephen Sondheim doing the lyrics, Leonard Bernstein doing a great score, uh, directed and choreographed by Jerome Robbins. Um, And it is, as as the critic David Cote has uh, described it, it carries the dual mark of both modern classic and dorky show you did in high school. Um, (laughs) So can you talk about 
the work of Ivo van Hova and 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 also what he has done to or should I say with West Side Story? <laughs> Pick your prepositional poison. He set out to make a West Side Story for the 21st century. Uh, and Ivo van Hove is, is sort of known for really shocking and often revelatory revivals of American classics, Arthur Miller's Crucible and uh, View from a Bridge, chief among them. And he told me that while he was working on these Arthur Miller plays in 2015 and 2016, it was the run-up to the Trump presidential campaign, the rise of Black Lives Matter. And as a Belgian artist working in New York, he was seeing the resurgence of racism and and state-sanctioned violence against Black bodies in America. And he was trying to think, what's a story that tells these strands of American identity. And uh, Ivo van Hove said he'd seen West Side Story on TV as a teenager in Flanders in the 60s. And he thought that that maybe that was the story that was going to speak to the present. And he went back and started reading Arthur Lawrence's script. And once he got past all the buddy boys and daddy-o's and cut the frabba-jabba, he recognized uh, that this was a play that was about fear of immigrants about poverty and racism and xenophobia and police brutality. And he thought this was the play that could speak to America today. And he uses in his staging a lot. He has thrown out the Jerome Robbins choreography and is working with a Belgian choreographer to create new movement and new stylization and new physicality. And he's um, made the, the, the tension between the the gangs, the sharks, and the jets. The sharks are still Puerto Rican, but the jets are a multi-ethnic uh, gang. Um, and he has he makes extensive use of video cameras and on-screen projections of both the thing that you are watching live on stage and other images culled from the world today. Is that a fair... I've not seen it. Is that a fair way to describe it? That is right, yeah. Ben Brantley's review in The Times was uh, titled Sharks versus Jets versus Video. Yeah. Which is, uh, I would say, the way my 10-year-old experienced the show. He said, why am I... Why are we going to see a Broadway show and all I'm doing is watching actors on a huge TV screen? Uh, the, you, it's a totally blank set and the actors are sometimes on stage with huge close-ups of them projected along the backstage wall. Uh, a colleague of mine, Catherine Young, called it the jumbotron effect. <laughs> and sometimes the actors are off stage, and a, a video camera is tracking them up to, say, Maria's bedroom or to inside uh, Doc's um, uh, candy store. And the, uh, the video projection allows us to go into those interior locations. Mm -hmm. So I think Van, Van Hove described it to me as a way to make the stage work feel as seamless as a film because you don't have to bring clunky sets on and off. But it's also a production, I think, that's really interested in, in voyeurism, in surveillance, in what our role as an audience is in watching violence. And, and maybe the most kind of on-the-nose moment is when Officer Kruckke shows up to uh, interrogate the Jets about where Tony, who's just killed uh, Bernardo, is hanging out, and he, he threatens them with his gun, and they all pull out their cell phone cameras. Uh, and um, it seems like maybe one way of understanding what Van Hove is doing is saying, can cameras stop gun violence? If we have enough video surveillance, could that get us out of this culture of brutality that these, um, these kids on the street seem to be educated in in this world? Interesting. Interesting. And I, I've seen, I mean, it's funny when I go to 
big Broadway musicals, like we saw the previews of Big Fish here in Chicago, and they used mm-hmm. so much projection. You kind of went, why am I watching this in a live theater with live actors? I don't didn't come, as your son said, I didn't come here to watch a movie. I came here to watch live actors in space in real time. And, and I've read reviews that love his use of video that, and think it's a, it's a lovely blend and it's not distancing. And then, of course, I've read reviews that suggest that it's wildly um, distancing. Um, what was your perspective uh, on the use of the video in this production? Yeah, well, I can since since my son is ten, I can give I can credit him with the kind of uh, fusty position that cinematographic techniques don't belong on stage. That that actually didn't bother me, and I think video can often be really um, a compelling sort of counterpoint to to what the audience sees. But there are two ways that Van Hove uses video that I um, I I really wanted to put some pressure on. So one way is that when uh, we get a song, then the video projection becomes almost like a music video in that it's not really images from within the fictional world of the show. Uh, But instead, for example, in the song America, when uh, Anita sings about uh, how glad she is to be off of the island of Puerto Rico, where always the hurricanes blowing, always the population growing, we actually see what, what sort of looks like CNN news footage of Hurricane Maria blowing palm trees in San Juan. Uh, and when the shark sing immigrant goes to America, there's a, an aerial shot of what looks like the Mexican uh, border wall um, going across the screen. And the, these are images that, uh, that try pretty uh, aggressively to make a connection between the musical's depiction of Puerto Rican migration to New York and the, the conditions of actual migrants and immigrants today. And uh, I see where the impulse behind that connection is, because West Side Story is a show that's, that's often felt timely in a lot of different moments and seems like it's speaking to our present in many ways. Uh, on the other hand, it seemed to me to be making uh, a, an equation, say, between the experience of Puerto Ricans who are U.S. citizens, um, who don't cross a border wall to come to New York, and the experience of uh, Mexican immigrants um, that that is rendered sort of, I would say, fairly sensationally. There's another image we see projected during the song America of Mexican, what appears to be Mexican immigrants kind of um, going across the Rio Grande to the U.S., which is indeed an, an, an important part of contemporary Latinx immigrant experience, but is a different one than the experience of most Puerto Ricans who certainly came to the U.S. in the 50s and who might be coming now. And when I interviewed Van Hove, um, about some ethnic slurs that are used in the production. He's, he said that uh, they came from Lawrence's script and that they, they were indeed, he said, the words that are used for the Mexicans. And I couldn't quite tell if he, if he didn't see a difference between Puerto Ricans and Mexicans or he was just making the claim that this stood in for everybody. And, and I can get the impulse behind that. But um, as, as I write about in my article, it, it was a show that wonderful creators made without really any sociological interest in what the actual experience of Puerto Ricans in New York was. Um, the, the famous story is of uh, Sondheim and Bernstein getting a letter from a doctor saying, you know, Puerto Rico isn't actually an island of tropic diseases, has a lower rate of mortality than New York. And Sondheim said, yeah, that might be true, but I like the rhyme with tropical breezes, and so we're going to keep it. And so I felt like uh, Van Hove leaning on on this particular show to tell the truth about Latinx migrant experience really ran the risk of mistaking 
kind of convenient theatrical stereotypes for authentic news footage. Well, and that's the that's exactly the quote from your article that I I quoted and retweeted in my tweet yeah. of your article and 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 because that's the that's again without having seen it that's what strikes me of, of what I've read about the musical is that this external footage this music video kind of accompanying imagery is and take it from me I would know reductive um, mm. but not in a good way it you know as you say it conflates Puerto Ricans with Mexicans and for one Puerto Ricans are Americans right they're not from a different nation they're from <laughs> an American whatever we call it. not a state but a whatever they are a province or whatever they yeah are. um but again the the critic David Cote who I, I I mentioned earlier responded to my tweet saying well the what but what the documentary video quote realism thread is doing in the production is pretty clearly a running critique of the material even as it enhances it um and I get that on it as an intellectual exercise, but I'm not sure. Again, not having seen it, that doesn't feel how like it would land emotionally well, to an audience. I, I love Coates reading. I wish I wish it were that subversive, and that would make it much more interesting to have it in a productive tension with the lyrics. But what Van Hove told me he wanted it to be doing was to extend the world of the play into the reality of contemporary American politics. And he, he said to me, this was the word he uses that, that stuck with me a little bit. He said, I'm really interested in the sociology of the play, the sociological reality of West Side Story. And I had been emailing with Sondheim, so I wanted to learn from him a little bit about the genesis of the show. And Sondheim also used the word sociological, and he did it in an email where he said, we had no interest in the sociological reality of the show. Our only interest was in how we did a modern Romeo and Juliet. And he said, it was originally Jews and Catholics. It ended up Puerto Ricans. He said, it could have been the Hatfields and the McCoys for all we cared. And that's where I felt like there was a bit of tension between what Van Hove was trying to do with the material and what the material would support. My name is Lauren Gunderson. I'm the playwright for The Book of Will, among other plays. And you are listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. And some brand new videos we recorded and shot especially for right now, including our online performance as the remote Shakespeare Company for our friends at the Reston Center Stage in Reston, Virginia, plus the almost two-hour video Q&A that Reed Martin and I conducted on Facebook, and our reduced reunion of over 50 RSE actors, stage managers, and wardrobe goddesses from at least four different time zones. Just go to our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or our YouTube page, YouTube.com slash user slash ReducedShakespeareCo, and click on the Co-Videos playlist. We'll continue to add to this page, so be sure to bookmark it. You can grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin, and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazel 
socials. And you can definitely see us and interact with us in almost real time on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates whenever they happen again is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and touring information. And now back to my conversation with Daniel Pollock-Pelsner talking about the Evo Van Hove production and the origins of West Side Story on Broadway. Talking about Sondheim's intent and what Van Hove has done with the show, one of the other major changes is that he's cut a lot of dance numbers, the dance at the gym, and he's cut Maria's song, I Feel Pretty. Um, which I guess Sondheim has always famously disliked because it makes sound makes Maria sound like she's uh, um, no coward all of a sudden. I feel witty and pretty and bright, or or witty and pretty and gay. It's alarming how charming I feel. Um, I disagree with Mr. Sondheim, as I do on many things, as it happens. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a wonderful song for Maria because it again Isaac Butler said this on Twitter this morning. It parallels nicely. Juliet's uh, poetic gifts uh, in the source material. It makes material. It makes they say a typical Puerto Rican girl in New York City in the fifties wouldn't speak like that. Well, we're not going to the theater to see a typical girl. We're going to see Maria, with whom everybody is rightly in love with. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. I think. There's, there are so many reasons why Sondheim's own discomfort with his material is, is, it makes one want to ask some more questions about it. And I think, I think you, you know, you recognize when you look at the song list for West Side Story, it is a, an intensely male show. There yeah. are no women in the prologue. Women do not sing the first song. It's the Jet song. Women don't sing the second song. Something's coming. Um, you know, uh, women don't sing Maria. It's not until the, I think the fifth song of the show that we actually get a female voice, um, heard in song. Even, even of course the great heterosexual love song, Maria is just Tony alone on stage. It's his body and his voice that our audience affection is directed toward. So I feel pretty is, is really the one moment where we get to see, um, Maria's feelings and thoughts get a, a playful and flirtatious and, uh, joyful expression um, before a boy like that. And I have a love at the very end. And so I think that was the initial response to the news that uh, Van Hova was cutting. I feel pretty was, huh? So are women not going to have any solos in this, uh, in this show? And then I think the, the reasons why Sondheim didn't like the song weren't really fully aired. Cause it, yes, it's, it's true. He said it's uh, he said it makes, Maria sound like she's a, um, a, you know, figured out of uh, drawing room comedy. But that was because, and he, he writes this in, in his collection of lyrics, Finishing the Hat, after he wrote this song because he got sick of what he called Bernstein's sort of insipid romanticism, making him rhyme tonight and bright and, you know, uh, day and, and whatever rhymes with day. He wanted, he was a young lyricist. He wanted to show off his chops. So he finally wrote a song where he could be as clever as he, as he possibly wanted to be. And then Sheldon Harnick, the lyricist for would later write Fiddler on the Roof a decade later, came up to him and said, you really think Maria and her friends would say it's alarming how charming I feel? And Sondheim said, oh, of course not. And I have to say, I always took that as a judgment about the linguistic capacity of 
young Puerto Rican women. And, and I remember discussing it with Chiara Alegria Hoodies, the wonderful playwright who wrote the script for In the Heights, a show that we should be doing to, to depict Caribbean diaspora experience. And she said she totally disagreed with Sondheim's self-critique, of course, because people who learn a second language are often the most creative and playful with it. Uh, but then as I thought about it more, um, I thought, of course, Sondheim has a history of saying that his characters are not actually clever enough to say the lyrics that he's given them. Maria's not unique in that. And that the lyrics that he does give Maria, um, I feel pretty and witty and gay. I'm in love with a pretty, wonderful boy, with a, a pun on pretty there, um, are, are lyrics that are about desire for a boy um, in, a, in a way that, that certainly Sondheim in his own life hasn't usually seemed to be interested in expressing in, in terms of talking about his own biography. And so when he says that, he hoped that the lyric would draw attention to the character, but in fact it drew attention to the writer. Um, it, it made me wonder if perhaps a more compassionate reading is that there's a certain kind of flamboyant excess to those lyrics that Sondheim felt was, was perhaps a little bit of a risk to draw attention to. Um, particularly well, at that moment. Yeah, and you talk in your article about, um, the, you mentioned Tony's body earlier. Uh, you talk about how everybody's fighting for Tony's body, literally, he's ours, you know, and the imagery, you know, uh, 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 womb to tomb, sperm to worm, you know, it's all very uh, male, and in fact, you this is the thing that you celebrate that I love, is that this was written by four Jewish homosexuals in the 50s, and it had a... It had a queer narrative, and I, I think that's a completely compelling description of what West Side Story is. You're absolutely right, Austin, and it's, and it's there in Romeo and Juliet, too, which is an intensely homoerotic show, and um, a, a lot of the, the love and the physical attraction and the wordplay is between men. And, uh, it's, and it seems to be when you know, we sort of think about it like, the question of the play is who has access to Tony's body. Riff mm. and the Jets want to keep Tony theirs, and they get increasingly violent in defending Tony's body against sharks who want to get to it. Maria to touch it, Bernardo to fight with it, uh, Anita to warn it, Chino to shoot it. And then finally the resolution is that the sharks and the Jets join in carrying Tony's body off stage, uh, leaving you know Maria a little bit out of that physical connection. And Because um, it's and not I about Maria. Yeah, and I, I actually think Van Hove gets this. He's got Tony and uh, Riff and Bernardo shirtless for as much of the musical as he possibly can, and he understands that that's where the, the sort of primary location of audience desire is, is for that for very um, you know beautifully sculpted uh, body. And he's got Isaac Powell, who is a star in the making and, and sings like a dream and, and kind of gives the impression that he's just making up all of these songs on the spot. He's, he's absolutely wonderful. But I felt, I have to say, I felt tre tremendous sympathy for these four, um, uh, I'm going to say queer uh, Jewish creators. They, they, had, they had sort of a range of identifications and a range of names that they would have given to their own sexuality who were writing in the McCarthy era mm. when there was a tremendous fear of exposure and of losing your, your career and your friends and your prospects for being seen as un-American. And so uh, notoriously, Jerome Robbins was called to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee while he was in the process of developing what became West Side Story. And the, at least the, um, the suggestion is that he was threatened with being outed 
as gay unless he named names. And he chose to name names. And he later wrote a play, a draft of a play about his experience testifying in which the committee asks him what his profession is. And he says, I'm a choreographer. And then the ghost of his father appears and says, no, you're a Jew who's trying to pass as a choreographer. And this is the guy who was born, Jerome Rabinovitz, you know, changed his name to Jerome Robbins. And I think passing as a choreographer is, is for Robbins, both passing in, in a sexual sense and in a religious sense. Um, Arthur Lawrence, born Arthur Levine, was blacklisted during these hearings and uh, could never really fully forgive Robbins and actually put a line in the West Side Story script where Officer uh, Krepke or Lieutenant Schrank is asking one of the boys, who did this to you? And they won't talk. And he says, I don't you know there's a difference between um, collaborating with the police and being a stool pigeon, which was a line that was really directed at Jerome Robbins. Wow. Uh, and and and. Lawrence had written, his first play was about a, uh, a closeted Jewish soldier in World War II based on Lawrence's own experiences in the army. And it, um, it was a hit. Bernstein loved it. That's why he wanted Lawrence to write the script for West Side Story. But when um, it went to Hollywood, the Jewish character was changed to a black character encountering anti-black racism. And Lawrence said, well, why'd you do that? And the producer said to him, Jews have been done. And then Lawrence was put on the blacklist shortly thereafter. So I think there was a, a very palpable sense for these artists that being open about their identity was only going to land them into trouble. Uh, and that was something really tricky for them to negotiate. Another aspect of the, of the current Broadway production that is controversial is, is the casting of one of the actors whose name I forget. Can you explain to us what that is? Yes. So Amar Ramasar. Uh, a dancer from the New York City Ballet, was cast as Bernardo in uh, the new Ivo van Hove production. And uh, the story with Ramasar is that he, he was a very celebrated ballet dancer, but he was fired from the New York City Ballet a little more than a year ago for uh, texting sexually explicit pictures of another female dancer in the ballet to uh, a fellow dancer and some other um, guys who were on their text chain. And uh, Ballet fired him and the other male dancer. And uh, he was at the time dancing in a Scott Rudin Broadway production of Carousel. And he was suspended for the, or taken out of the production for the night. And on his understudy replaced him. And then he came back the next night. And uh, he was reinstated, I think, several months later by an arbiter who ruled that the ballet was uh, right to discipline him for sending these sexually explicit photos of a fellow dancer, but that it wasn't a firing offense, that suspension would be the more appropriate um, course of action. So uh, all this was known about him. And then he was cast in another Scott Rudin production, this new Ivo van Hove uh, West Side Story, playing the role of um, Bernardo, which, which is a, a role that has been, I think, often and rightly criticized for presenting Latino men as uh, uh, sexually violent predators. Uh, Van Hove told me that Ramasar had been acquitted, which is not quite accurate. He, 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 he didn't have a fireable offense, but the arbiter certainly found that he had done something that was worthy of discipline. Um, and this, uh, this has gained a lot of opposition. So the, the, you can find, I think, almost nightly protesters outside the Broadway theater where West Side Story is playing, holding up signs saying, Boo, Bernardo. And there's an online petition to get him removed. Scott Rudin, the producer, has said, uh, I don't condone what he did, but what do you want me to do? Recast him? 
Uh, and I think a lot of people uh, have, have said, mm, mm, maybe. Uh, he hasn't gotten great reviews. He's a good dancer, but he's not really a singer or an actor. And he's sort of forced to play this slightly caricatured role. Um, and where it, where it really felt for me like it connected to the history that we've been talking about, Austin, is that this is actually a show that for a long time has been putting women's bodies on the line as a kind of collateral damage for male artistic success. Uh, and this actually goes back to Arthur Lawrence's script. Is it, but not exclusively women's bodies, like young people's bodies of all genders currently, right? Well, I mean, certainly there's a lot of violence that goes throughout the show, but uh, the change that Arthur Lawrence was most proud of when he was adapting Romeo and Juliet to West Side Story was the ending. And he always thought, and, and I think many people agree with him, that the, the tragic ending of Romeo and Juliet hangs a little bit on coincidence. So we know that Juliet uh, is a plot with the friar to feign her suicide and Romeo's going to find out she's not really dead. He'll come back, they'll elope. But the message doesn't get to Romeo in time because there's a plague that stops the messenger from, from leaving Verona and tragedy ensues. And Lawrence said, this is silly. The whole point of my drama is that it's prejudice that's the cause of tragedy. And so he changed the ending. And, and indeed, he has Anita come to the uh, dock store to give the message to Tony that Maria is awaiting for him. But when she gets there uh, and asks where Tony is, the jets close ranks, protecting Tony's body and won't let her get through. And she says, I let me pass. And they say, you're too dark to pass. And they say all of these um, ethnic taunts at her. And then they attempt to rape her. They put the sort of virginal young baby John's body on top of her as a kind of uh, grotesque initiation ritual for him into the world of uh, adult American masculinity, which involves sexual assault against a, uh, a Puerto Rican woman. And, and Lawrence loved this scene, said, finally, this shows how Hate conquers love because Anita escapes and says, I'm going to uh, uh, tell Tony that, that Chino killed Maria and is going to come for him too. So uh, he said that he loved that British audiences recognized the change. He thought American audiences missed it because they didn't know Shakespeare and that British audiences thought this was an improvement on Shakespeare. And he, he, he always would brag in his memoirs that he had improved on Shakespeare basically by adding a scene of sexual assault. And I think when I've talked about this with other people, they don't quite remember it because it's not often staged very directly. But Van Hove has a, a, a real interest in staging sexual assault very explicitly and, and did it quite notoriously in his production of The Fountainhead a, a couple of years ago. And in this Broadway revival, we see Anita's body in intense close-up on a sort of a cell phone video screen as she is uh, groped and assaulted by the jets. And we see them pulling off her clothing and pulling off baby John's clothing and, and forcing this assault on her. And to, to watch this scene unfold um, in the context of a production that has hired an actor who circulated sexually explicit photos of another performer via cell phone image seems quite queasily to put us as an audience in the position of, of receiving that kind of exploitative imagery um, and suggesting that at least this, this particular woman's body um, is the kind of cost of the, the kind of extreme violence that these creators from Lawrence to Van Hove wanted to depict. And Van Hove, when I asked him about the scene, he said, 
he said it was the ultimate form of dehumanization and he thought it wouldn't be fair to Anita not to stage it as edgily as he could. Um, and that's, a, that's an aesthetic that I think is rightly being questioned. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Daniel Pollock Pelsner and I chatted for another 20 to 25 minutes, which I will share with you if and whenever the new Steven Spielberg film version of West Side Story is released. So until then, send us your queer origin stories via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Daniel Pollock Pelsner on Twitter at Pollock Pelsner. Thanks as always to boy, boy, crazy boy, Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Jean-Vievre Flatty. I sure hope I pronounced that correctly. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to playwright Lauren Gunderson. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 710 2030ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. It's a thing that I really don't care for of, uh, well, aside from assaulting female bodies i don't care for that but also this idea that oh well it's it's so real it's so important to be real and edgy and it's like i I, that seems like an excuse for really bad behavior and i'm not down with that yeah i think that's a good way of putting it and that's the sort of whole van hove aesthetic seemed to be let's make this as gritty and realistic as possible. There's actually real rain that comes down during the rumble fight scene, actual water on stage. Um, And Tony pummeling Bernardo really looks like they are out of fight club. And I think that that kind of shock aesthetic is is one direction you can go with the piece, but, but I don't think it's really supported by the material. And what's often really beautiful about West Side Story is the way it elevates that kind of sociological interest into the realm of, of fantasy. And, and, you know, Jerome Robbins' leaping bodies were never realistic. They were, they were, uh, they had the energy of youthful vitality in a post-war moment. But the thrill of them was that they could conjure a stage place like the lyrics in Somewhere that could be a place for us. And, uh, and I was moved to, you know, learn that Leonard Bernstein, when he started hosting AIDS benefits in the 80s, would always use the song somewhere at the end of those benefits um, because the because the music has sustained hope for a lot of people who haven't felt like their identities could be represented on stage. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.